Off-Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. We are back after almost a year of being on break, but now I have more time to do more interviews with fascinating parents, educators, and young people who are blazing their own paths through life and education. As always, if you know someone who should be a guest on this podcast, please email me and tell me, yours truly at blakebowles.com. A few big announcements before we jump into this interview. First of all, I'm on speaking tour right now. It's March 2018, and I'm giving a number of talks in Northern California, Southern California next month, and in fall 2018, I'll be speaking all across the East Coast and the South. And so you can find those dates on blakebowles.com speaking. I'd love to see you. Second announcement, I have restarted my private one-on-one coaching service for self-directed young people and their parents, and I have a new name for it. It's called Indie Guidance Counselor. I-N-D-I-E, which is short for independent. Uh, I originally made it I-N-D-Y, which is wrong. I'm not the Indianapolis guidance counselor. I'm the independent guidance counselor for independent young people and non-traditional, non-conformist young people who are taking really different paths through life and who can use some guidance sometimes on thinking about gap years or college admissions or the challenges of motivation as related to unschooling. And so you can find that at IndieGuidanceCounselor.com. Last big announcement. I am on Patreon, the website that lets people support independent creators like myself. And I've been on Patreon in the past where a great group of people has supported the podcast on a per-episode basis. But I also know that contributing per episode makes some people feel uncomfortable because you don't really know how much you're going to spend each month. And so I've changed it to a monthly fixed recurring donation system so you have complete control over how much you contribute. And this no longer just supports the podcast. This also supports my writing. I'm going to be publishing a series of articles on the Alliance for Self-Directed Education website. I'm going to be producing a new video series, which is all about the how-tos of unschooling and self-directed learning and alternatives to college and these podcasts. And none of this is work that anyone pays me for. And that's fine. I don't expect to get paid for it. This is what I want to do and what I'm good at. And so I'm going to continue doing it no matter what. But I've noticed that when I do get paid for this work, it makes me take it more seriously. And it feels like a sort of accountability system that ensures that I continue to do high quality work on a regular basis. And so if you would like to act essentially as my accountability buddy by contributing to me on a monthly basis, then uh, thank you. And also, it's nice for you because you get all of my publications from all the different mediums uh, in one spot, the Patreon feed. And also, sometimes at the higher levels, I'm offering Patreon rewards, which is stuff you can only get as a contributor. And so you can check that out at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Blake Bowles. Or if you forget any of these links, just go to blakebowles.com and it's all there. And now without further ado, I bring you Lisa Betts La La <laughs> La Croix. There you go. La Croix. You got it. I'm here with Lisa Betts La Croix in beautiful <laughs> uh, San Francisco Bay Area, California. Thanks for being here, Lisa. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> yeah, which is funny because we are in your house. I am renting a room from you uh, for three weeks, and we're in your podcasting 
studio. I love it. Exactly. So who's hosting whom? I don't know. It's a little fuzzy, isn't it? (laughs) So uh, I brought you on to talk about micro-schooling in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I'd love to just begin with what is micro-schooling, the very brief definition. So people who are maybe interested in this episode can know what they're getting themselves into. Well, like most terms related to independent learning and the way education is changing, it's sort of up for discussion. So I think different people have different versions of what micro school means. To me, a micro school is a usually a place, but it can be a moving place. It can be a different place where a small number of people, kids, learners come together to learn together. And there are many variations on it, but so it could be a micro school could be kind of a pop-up ongoing class in someone's house that's almost like a co-op, or it could be a standalone school run by a teacher offering a la carte classes. For me, one of the key things about a micro school that makes it distinct from another school is that it is not full-time. Ah, okay. So if it's full-time, it's no longer micro. For me, it's not a micro school if it's a full-time school. It's just a small school. which doesn't necessarily follow from the language, but for me, just in terms of the way the terms evolved and evolving, it has a unique definition to me that implies a la carte classes and non full-time. Okay. And usually the kids who sign up for micro school classes or activities are legally homeschoolers. They're not is this something that's being done by kids who are going to full-time school and then they sign up for a micro school class after school or on the weekend, or is it usually homeschoolers? So you tripped me up a little bit when you said legally homeschoolers. So as you may, I'm guessing you know, there's no legal way to actually homeschool. The way that you homeschool in California is you're either signed up through an R4 or a private school affidavit, and you're officially a private school student, student in your, a school at your own house. At your own house. Yeah. So you're a private school in a school of one or two or three or however many in your family, or you're officially a public school student through a charter that serves homeschooling families. Oh boy. Okay. This is a good distinction. So yeah, when I was saying legally homeschooler, I was talking about that first case okay. where a student in California uh, is declared to be a private school student at their family home Okay, and, then and in- being privately instructed by their parents, hypothetically. Okay, then in my answer to your question is that you could be that form of independent learner, which you're calling the legal homeschooler, mm-hmm. or you could be the other kind, which is the official public school student in a homeschooling charter. They would also take advantage of microschooling classes. Got it. Okay, so all types, all varieties of all homeschooler varieties of are represented in the microschooling movement. Absolutely. Good. And Lisa, are you a certified, registered, licensed microschooling expert? How do you know so much about this? <laughs> I am definitely not a certified expert in much, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Uh, how do I know so much about that? I have been independently educating my kids for over 10 years, I think, and I have approached it both ways. Initially, we started off as a private school, doing a private school affidavit, and then we've moved to working with a charter. So I've done it both ways. And most of the people that I know in the Bay Area who homeschool choose one or the other. And I want to hear about the beginning of your story. How did you get started doing independent learning, homeschooling? How did it become necessary for you or your, your family? 
Ooh. Well, I was always quite interested in an alternative version to learning because I personally did not enjoy my early educational years. I went to school all pumped up to learn, and I just felt that it was an experience of not engaged learning so much of the time. I mean, I had some really good teachers over the course of the years, but mostly I felt that school was not very engaging and there was so much repetition and regurgitation. And I just felt like what I imagined learning to be was not happening in the school situation that I was in. And were you feeling this throughout K through 12? And also where did you grow up and go to school? And Uh, was it public or private? So I grew up in a suburb of Toronto and I definitely felt that in my elementary school years. I then changed schools in high school. And I would say just as in general, I didn't have an overall great experience in in school. Like I say, I had some some really good teachers, but I just didn't feel as engaged or as involved or as uh, I didn't feel as enough autonomy, I I would say, in my educational environment or Mm -hmm. just as enough stimulation. So I always knew that it wasn't I had some questions about whether that was going to work for my kids or whether I wanted to put them in that, in that environment. And then before I had kids, I read a book that I cannot even remember the name. I've searched for it again about a family who took their kids out of school and traveled the world and just learned as they traveled. And I read it and it clicked in so, so clearly to me that something like that was what I imagined doing. And then I, when I had my first child, which was 1998, I wasn't sure how we were going to approach education, but it turned out that he was an exceptionally early reader. He was an unusual kid. He started reading on his own when he was about two and a half. And I just could not figure out how that was going to fit in a public school education like the one I'd had. And so I started thinking about, back to this book of relearning and what do you do and maybe you travel and do something different and I've always been a little bit of an outside the box person so I don't necessarily go down the charted path unless it makes sense to so note to the reader that means she's weird confirm (laughs) this yes verified (laughs) verified weird (laughs) yes so um yeah so it just became clear that a regular public school education wasn't going to work. And so we did apply to a local school that serves the needs of the gift of gifted kids. Um, and, and my first child went there for three years and then we just felt like we wanted more freedom and more ability to customize learning for their particular needs. And Mm -hmm. so at that point we decided let's give homeschooling a shot. We left for a year and, uh, Where that, were you at this point? Were you still in Canada? Were you here? No, the- no, we we lived here. So I, I grew up in Canada, but I moved to Canada. I was a film and television actor in Toronto, and I moved to LA in 1996. Okay. So I met my husband and started my family in in the LA area, and then we moved back to the Bay Area uh, when my first child was 16 months old. And because Silicon Valley, my husband's in the tech world. and okay. so, so essentially your whole family history has happened here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Except for the first year. Except for that yeah, yeah, yeah. 16 months. Yeah, yes. the 16 we months. We won't count those. <laughs> so yes, the whole educational world has happened here. And in fact, when we first came to the Bay Area, we lived in a trailer in 
the in a pretty rough area of San Francisco during the dot com era where my husband was building a company and we first started we started our very first educational co-op out of that trailer when my first kid was about 2 years old so we formed a parent run co-op where we had five or six families involved and we had one paid caregiver and we took turns hosting and on any given day there'd be a parent and the paid caregiver. And it was our responsibility as the parent to work with the paid caregiver to come up with learning opportunities for the kids. So I just mentioned that because it, I just mentioned that because it was an early example of how I think, how I've thought about our educational choices since then, which is kind of like forming community and collective learning opportunities in, with other families. So you've never really been a fan of the whole like nuclear family idea just a couple parents raising a kid no no okay. not that's not been my orientation educationally or just even how we live i mean we tend i tend to be someone who likes to create community and likes to have other people around i mean i yeah yes. i'm more of a community person for sure uh-huh. <laughs> okay so you started a homeschool little homeschool co-op in san francisco and what kind of opportunities were there in the the bay area at that time well, at that time, I was – so that's around the same time that I initially started to explore homeschooling. This was before they went to my, – my kid went – Kaizen went to a private school for three years, which was pre-KK and one. So before that, I started thinking about homeschooling because I wasn't sure what was going to happen. At this time, we were not all that involved in the homeschooling community. I did find out about San Francisco homeschoolers, which at the time – consisted of about 15 families and the way they communicated was there was a hard copy snail mail list that went out every week or or a couple of weeks about the local park day so it there was no this was before technology really taken over in the homeschooling world and that was a small group of families that we connected with with the possibility that maybe we would homeschool but the time homeschooling was fairly oriented around what I'd call school at home Parents doing that nuclear family thing where they pull out the math book and they teach their kids a particular set of curriculum that's modeling what the child might do at school. Or people in the early stages or the early days of what we now know to be the unschooling movement, people who wanted more freedom for their kids and didn't necessarily create structured curriculum or learning opportunities for them. But we're really just trying to give them freedom for uh, freedom as children, freedom to learn, freedom to explore. And yeah, that was kind of what was available at the time. Mm-hmm. And did you yeah. feel like you felt in you fit into either one of those boxes? Well, at that time, my child was pretty young, but and I, I'm trying to remember back if I actually felt like, oh, this fits me. I definitely felt that the homeschooling community at that time was more of a fit for me than a traditional public school sort of community. But I think because my child was a fairly voracious learner, I didn't necessarily see the the see the whole picture being met for for them at that point. I felt that they wanted to learn more that just being free and just hanging out in the park and just, you know, I felt it wasn't really going to be quite enough. 
So actually, after we left the school and we decided to try actual homeschooling, it was a few years later. So they were seven at that point. So um, I I had a friend named Jennifer who together we – she actually suggested that we form a group together. She was already homeschooling and she was pretty instrumental in – us leaving school and she'd been really encouraging you really should come back to homeschooling, consider it. And she said, and furthermore, why don't we start a group? There are so many gifted online groups where people were connecting and making friendships and interacting with people online, but we did not really have anything local in the San Francisco Bay Area for people who were homeschooling for academic and intellectual reasons, not just because they wanted freedom or not because their kids were busy doing other things or because they were religious or whatever, but homeschooling because their kids were not getting their unique needs met in mm-hmm. an academic and intellectual mm-hmm. way. So we created a group at that point. Which was? At that, it's called Bay Area Gifted Homeschoolers. And at that time, we were pretty low key about it. We didn't really want to be very public about it. So we didn't say the name out loud to anyone. We kind of wanted people to have to work to find us a little bit because we didn't want to be a huge public group. We really wanted the people who needed us badly to have to work a bit to find us. And so we thought we'd be a pretty small group. We invited the few friends that we both knew who were in that situation where they were independently educating their kids because they had these unique needs, uh, which, by the way, in case you know listeners don't know this, the challenges of having a gifted kid, which is a word we all understand is problematic, are both on the side of it's, – it's almost like ha- it's having an asynchronistic kid where – Sometimes it's not just, it's easily misunderstood as being, well, you just have a smart kid, they'll be fine. And in fact, that's not the case. Often kids who we identify as gifted have the challenge that they may be five or six years ahead in one area, but either at grade level or even in a behind in another area. So there's a lot of uh, elements that come with that, both socially and also academically. And mm-hmm. so it's it's a it's a fairly anyway it's a whole other topic in a way. But um, we created this group. We invited the few friends we had to join us, and we thought we'd have you know twenty thirty kit twenty thirty families. And we grew so quickly because the reality is that in the San Francisco Bay Area, the region attracts really bright people and really bright people tend to have really bright and also quirky sometimes children. Mm-hmm. And so this is what I would expect from the the tech scene. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what you get. And they're just not enough academic environments, schools, alternative institutions that can actually address the needs of those kids. And so as a result, a lot of people opt to take their kids out of school and find ways to support their learning in ways that are not traditional. And you add to that the fact that this area attracts people who are weird. You know, it attracts uh, attracts those of us who don't necessarily want to just do things the traditional done way. And so you put all that together and you have uh, an opportunity for creating a very strong, engaged community of people who are progressive thinking deeply committed to their kids' education, often highly educated and intelligent themselves, and willing and able, both financially and time-wise and energetically, to put energy into creating a unique environment, learning environment for their kids. Mm. Okay. So your first kid was out of school and you started homeschooling, but did you just, you know, you didn't do school at home. 
And you've never been a fan of that, right? <laughs> what did it actually look like and how did it evolve and how did it turn into something you now call micro-schooling? So when Jennifer and I formed BAGS, which is what it's known in the Bay Area as BAGS, Bay Area Gifted Homeschoolers, we found ourselves having this community that I described of really synergistic or what's the word? Um uh, simpatico families, I guess, <laughs> sure, or yeah. I'm not sure there's a word. I'm like-minded. Like-minded um, uh, community. And we were quite different. Jennifer was actually a really good teacher. And so she taught her daughter a lot at home and then accessed a lot of, as she got older, a lot of great resources. And she went to college, did early college, et cetera. I don't consider myself to be a very good teacher at all. So, and I'm also very community oriented. So my impulse was to create classes in my house to get families together to find a service provider or teacher someone who had domain expertise or an interest in a specific area or to find other families or other teachers other parents who could teach a particular topic area and then bring people together for classes mm. so that's what started to evolve over the the years where more and more I started out organizing classes and then other families, other members of our community would organize classes. And then it started to become one of the tenets of the group that if you're going to join the group, we expect that you be engaged in the group and contribute to the group. So it was, it became part of the culture that if you're going to be in the group, you're also looking for learning opportunities for other people to join. Okay. And so a high percentage of our families, increasingly so over the years, started to take more and more advantage of these putting little, together classes. These little classes. These little classes that so, they created or joined. And so essentially you've got a lot of highly educated parents who either they themselves or through their personal networks are creating really great classes with really powerful teachers, usually highly engaging teachers – because the kids don't right. have to show up for these classes yeah. and the parents have to pay out of pocket exactly. for every class. Exactly. And so if the class is not working for a kid, then it's not going to keep going. Exactly. It's like the cream rises to the top in yeah. a way. And I think that that's what I feel happened over the years in the Bay Area is that we collectively started to look for people who are these stellar teachers who were completely engaging and they would fall off the radar if they weren't delivering in that way because the kids start to get really picky about what's an engaging class. And mm -hmm. then they say, uh, I didn't really like that once they stopped going. On the other hand, if you find someone who is really great, and I'll use Jim Wilton's as an example, because we spoke, you know, yeah, Jim Wilton's who directs Deer Crossing Camp, where I went as a camper and where I also worked for a number of summers. I've definitely talked about him before. Yes. So he's a really good example of someone who I heard about through a friend whose children were in school. And then he came in the homeschooling community and I organized classes with him and everyone loved them so much that then they started organizing classes with Jim. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of thing happens a lot when someone's discovered and liked in the community, we talk a lot about mm, it. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly there's a there's a kind of spread of that person into the into the community. And so there's a certain element of the cream rising to the top because mm -hmm. like you said, these kids don't have to keep going back and we don't have to keep hiring the teachers. No, because it's just you contract them <laughs> for one class, exactly. right? This is fascinating because of, for two reasons. First of all, because as you've told me, there's often this kind of dilemma between choosing to be a homeschooler, but then you're like, 
but I'm not qualified to teach these classes or I'm not passionate about teaching this stuff. Uh, and it, that becomes more of an issue as kids get older uh, and knowledge becomes more specialized. But also on the unschooling side of things, uh, some parents like you, uh, you know, don't feel comfortable with being completely hands off and saying like, do whatever you want all day. And you still have this desire to like impart or inspire some sort of uh, academic discipline, some sort of, uh, you know, what we can consider the more traditional subjects, but you want it to be highly engaging for your kids. You don't want to put them through this slog. And so it seems like micro-schooling offers a potential balance between the the homeschooling do-it-yourself world and the unschooling do-it-yourself world by outsourcing, uh, essentially, really great teaching to really great teachers and on a very a la carte basis. And so you can, you can constantly find new classes. You don't have to stick with something like in high school, you have to stick with a chemistry class for the entire year, even if you hate the teacher, even if you're not learning anything in the class. And in here, there's much more uh, turnover. Is, is this all accurate? Yeah, I think it's accurate. And I, I, I'm not sure about the word turnover. And I, I, I think what you mean by that, and I think you're right, is that there's, a sense of um, there's a sense of delivery expectation. It's kind of like when someone's offering a course or a class or some learning opportunity, and I call it direct to consumer learning. Basically, it's someone who has a business or a museum has got involved in this in the Bay Area pretty early on to offering classes as uh, you know after school classes, but also in the daytime. That's something that's happened over the years progressively. Is that the organizations that used to only offer classes 3.30 to 6.30 because they were only serving the after-school market started to realize that there's a market ripe for their services. The homeschoolers, they will come to will us Will come in the, the day. daytime. You know, how many, how many people who are offering after-school classes have empty businesses during the day? And I think they started to realize as we grew as a market – because right now we have about 450 families in our group. And our group is just one group in the Bay Area with one particular focus. There are a lot of other homeschooling groups that have different focus areas or different uh, values that they base their groups around. But a lot of these service providers, museums, businesses serving after school people realize this is a market. And so just like any other market, the market requires that the delivery be good. And so that's true. Now, that wasn't always the case. We're jumping around a little bit in terms of timing. I think this is something that's evolved over time. And I don't want to suggest that all homeschoolers or all people, even in my group, necessarily outsource all of their their learning, to their kids' learning, because that's not the case. Some people really do work at home. Many, many of our kids take advantage of online uh, offerings, either through the MOOCs like Coursera or Udemy, um, the community colleges, the local community colleges are really great about offering access to kids as young as 13, 12, 13, 14, um, as concurrent learning when they're mm -hmm. ready for mm -hmm. it. So the thing is, there, there are all different ways of learning. And I think the piece about micro-schooling is that it's often an add-on or an adjunct to a variety of different ways of mm -hmm. learning. So one child may take an online class by themselves, they may work in a particular topic area that they're interested in on their own, that may be very traditionally school, and then they might go to a micro school for a whole other set of classes. Mm -hmm. In um, addition to having just a large array of non-academic interests, which is just, yeah. we could call self-directed learning or unschooling. Yeah. And so it sounds like what has developed here is this real cornucopia of 
of learning opportunities, both structured and unstructured, academic and non-academic. Yeah, I love that word. That's great. Cornucopia. I like Let's it. Let's start a business called yes, Cornucopia. cornucopia learning. Done. Done. High five. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Cornucopia Micro School. The, <laughs> how about the Cornucopia the corn... Roving Micro School? <laughs> uh, the, yeah. Okay, let's stop there before okay, this yeah. turns into a deep brainstorm <laughs> session. So um, another thing that I really like about this uh, is that you can be somebody who enjoys teaching, and it sounds like you could potentially come, and if you hang out in the Bay Area long enough, and you offer some really engaging classes, and enough families enough kids are into those classes that you can have a business for yourself. Absolutely. And that, uh, so this is something that Joel Hammond over at uh, Princeton Learning Cooperatives, which is modeled on North Star, talks about in his book, The Teacher Liberation Handbook. Uh, He says, you know, he's like, because he was a a public school teacher and he said, I love teaching, but I hate that my kids have to be there, have to to be here and are so disengaged and resentful of me. He said, but how, where else can I go? to be a teacher and still have an income Mm. and essentially nowhere. And he talks about starting essentially a a teen learning center and which is a big move that takes a a huge amount Mm -hmm. of investment to actually start a school or a learning center. And it sounds like here, if you are a talented teacher who has, who has what you call domain expertise, you can come up and if you are friendly and if you are compelling, you can essentially have a, a freelance income mm-hmm. and do does anyone do this full time oh yeah i think there are a lot of people who do it full time okay. and so i just want to one thing that you said um that you have domain expertise i think you can have domain expertise but you could also simply have the ability to engage and support and facilitate and coach kids on their own learning. Mm. You can just be someone who who gets learning and gets how to facilitate learning. It doesn't have to be domain expertise, I don't think. But couldn't you do – there are many, many people, in my opinion, who have done that. And some of them have gone so far as to create standalone schools mm. or locations. Can you give us some examples of, yeah. of historical yeah, sure. ones here in the Bay Area? So I know that you're going to be speaking soon at Quantum Camp. And Quantum Camp is a really good example of someone like the teacher you just mentioned. So there are – Michael and Ryan were two teachers who were math and science public school teachers in the Berkeley area. And they decided that they wanted to be able to offer math and science, high level math and science to kids who are ready for it, even if they weren't at the age appropriate grade level. And so they left the school system and started to teach first in our house, in our homes. And so a number of us would organize maybe eight or 10 kids who are interested in studying quantum physics, say. And so they would come in and they would teach their curriculum. And then over the years, they started to do this more and more within our community to the point where then they decided to create a standalone school. And Michael and Ryan were very early in using the term micro school. So now they currently, Quantum Camp offers a variety of classes. They're all, all a la carte classes that you can take. And they've changed their model over the years, but they were definitely early in on saying, let's take our learning direct to consumer and Mm -hmm. make a business out of it. Now, that's one example. Another example is you could take a kid, someone that I knew as a young person who grew up homeschooling and then decided that they wanted to offer their... D&D services, Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. Nerdville, USA. I played as a kid. It's role-playing. When my kid was 10 years old, it was really hard to find a good DM. So there's Dungeon Master. Dungeon Master, thank you. the one who organizes the game. Exactly. It was really hard. And so there are, um, there's a, a, 
a kid that I know knew since the age of 10, who's now about 20, and recently decided that he wanted to offer his dungeon master services and offer Dungeons and Dragons with sort of a learning element I think he has involved to our community. And he's taken off because people love him. They this, think he's this amazing. This is fantastic. So you can get paid to play Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. And oh, here's another example of something that's also changed form many times. There was a group, a, a man who was a second or third grade teacher, and I'm forgetting his name now, but he decided about, I want to say maybe eight years ago or 10 years ago, to start something called Kittisons. And he was a social studies teacher, a social science teacher, and he decided that it would be really great for kids to learn social studies through making their own little Lego cities. So let's attract kids to this idea of making Lego cities and I'll teach them how the civics process works. We're going to decide who, who's, whose fire station design gets to be the oh. fire station. And so he had a whole process where he had them voting for the mayor. And so he taught social studies through Lego. Now he ended up leaving and going to LA and I think selling the business. And I think it's changed form over the, over the years. But the point is that someone said, I'm a teacher. I want to take my learning system mm. out into the world and created a – and he is another person who created a, a location-based. Mm -hmm. But these are teachers who have these novel approaches or they want to do something like offer high-level math and physics to younger kids who are ready for it. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's not a very big market. Maybe there's not enough kids like in a public school – to make something like that feasible. It's like, sorry, we're, we can't offer this kind of class to the kids you're talking about because there just aren't enough of them. But it seems like it can work if you're drawing from a larger area, especially if you have parents who are willing to drive their kids from one part of the Bay Area to the other for this very valuable class that they can't find elsewhere. You know, that's something else I've seen change over the years. Hmm. So when those of us who began, when we started BAGS in 2008, so 10 years ago, and we had a small group of people, we had a very tight community, and we were spread all over the Bay Area. So most of us did a lot of driving to create community and to create connections, both socially and academically, for our kids. So many of us drove from San Francisco to San Jose and back up. The thing is, now that the community has grown as much as it has, and it's continuing to grow exponentially there are more and more kids. So the bell curve of, say, 9 to 12-year-olds in our group is very large. So while I used to have to drive from San Francisco down to San Jose to form relationships and to create friendships, now within a mile of my house, there are five or six families in mm. our group. Mm -hmm. So this is changing pretty quickly. You don't as often have to drive. So for example, my daughter right now, she has her full learning days. This is another change that's happened is people have started to organize not just a one-off class, but a full day of classes. Mm. So she has a full day of classes on Tuesdays at Sharepath Academy, which is a micro school in San Mateo. And she has three or four different classes throughout the day on Tuesdays. Then Wednesdays, she has a full day of classes at a fellow parent's house that that parents organized. It happens to be science, math, and and Shakespeare, SF Shakes, um, public speaking through, through Shakespeare. And then on Thursday, she has another whole set of classes right around the corner from here at another friend's house. And that is a wide-ranging thing from writing, using the hero's journey, to math games with a teacher named Yule In, who's also been around the homeschooling world for a long time. And then entomology with a woman named the Beetle Lady. <laughs> and she then she does sewing with them too. Okay. And uh, a teacher named Esme who's been around. So the thing is, yeah, so people this, piece them together. This is very interesting because uh, part of the appeal is that 
that microschooling is a la carte, and you kind yeah. of piece together this custom uh, set of classes or activities. But you're also saying that there's bundling that happens, mm-hmm. and increasingly so now. That didn't used to be the case. So does that mean that that parents are now kind of nudging their kids into signing up for whole bundles of classes that happen on one day? It's like, listen, I know you hate the Beetle Lady, but you like these other classes, so yeah. go sign, do the Beetle Lady thing anyway. So yeah. Does this lead to a, a, a potential decrease in interesting in, in autonomy and and the kids' choice? I think you could see it as a compromise, and I think you're right to say that there might be some, uh, there might be a little bit more compromises being made on a on a class by class basis. But we also still have the ability to say, ah, the kids aren't really liking this particular class. Let's see if we can replace that mm-hmm. person. And what does happen because it needs to for sustainability because we're all busy. Most of us have other things that we're involved in and that we do. And so I think what happens sometimes is if a class isn't working out. Like you say, we're mostly only committing to it. We often use the September to December frame as a commitment and then January to May as a commitment. So we do follow, at least the people that I'm involved with, we tend to follow that because we'd rather commit to, we're willing to commit to a 10 to 12 week time frame. Mm-hmm. We're not really that interested for the most part in committing to year, most of us into a, mm-hmm. a year's length of mm-hmm. classes, unless we already know that provider. But we can then in December say, ah, oh, this class wasn't working so well. Let's, let's find someone else to fill in that time slot. So yeah. I think you're right. There is more compromise, but the, the, the pieces are still smaller. We're still talking about one day. Yeah, that's you know? <laughs> right. That's right. You can really uh, break it down into these tiny little chunks. And some parts of the chunks you can't get, kind of get away from. Maybe you've committed to it for 12 weeks. Yeah. But it's essentially the same commitment that you make signing up for community college classes. Right. Or four-year university. Right. Yeah. It's like you're going on a semester-by-semester basis. Yes. And of course, if your kid really hates one of the classes, then they can just stop taking it. They can stop taking it, yeah. yeah. And there's not some giant – because you're homeschoolers, right. there's not some giant – academic repercussion but, of just dropping a class that you hate. And and don't forget, like I said, my there's a lot of communication amongst our community. So people, especially before they make a big, long commitment, mm. are going to be mm. asking people, what do you think about this experience? What was your experience with Jim Wilton's? How does that so-and-so work? Have you taken a class? Are they like this? And there is a lot of communication mm. around that. Are the, and so you have powerful feedback mechanisms that help the, the cream rise to the top, as you we say. We do. Okay. Um, yeah, fascinating. Are, are there any areas or subjects that are not well represented in the Bay Area? So if you want to study math, you can study math, English, public speaking, leadership skills. Is there anything where, you know, maybe lab science, for example, biology, where you've yeah. where it's not that easy to sign yeah. up for a class? Lab science is definitely a place that I think people have to reach out a little more. There's an organization called BioCurious, that was around for a while, and it was largely focused on adults, but they were exceptionally open to letting kids come and being be involved. But I'm not sure exactly what happened. Like many organizations, sometimes there's friction with continuing or making things happen. So I'm not exactly they, – they seem to have fallen off the radar. Um, I think that lab science, a lot of times people are using the community colleges for, mm-hmm. But I, I would say, yes, lab science is definitely an area that has seemed to be a little more challenging for people to actually make happen mm-hmm. for the kids. The thing that I would say is that anyone who is really good at connecting with young people and really good at engendering engagement and interaction and has a unique spin on something is really a good 
potential fit for the people that I know in the Bay Area. Mm. So I know you mentioned, well, you have math and you have science. I would say for the most part that people are largely looking for a different spin. Mm. They're looking for a creative way of approaching things. Like I gave the example of Kittisons. Mm -hmm. I think that kind of approach works a lot more, at least within my community, who are a little bit more of the weird outside the box kind of people. They want something that's a little different. They don't want it. They really don't want to just recreate school at home. And what I like about that is that I've always said that if you have to choose one metric for what educational system or environment to put your kid in, choose engagement. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's really totally. the, the number one thing that kids and parents are concerned with, which is not, you know, does is there enough subject matter to round out my, my kid's education? It's, is this a highly engaging teacher who's going to inspire my kid to be interested in this subject, even if it's something that perhaps they didn't display a pre-existing interest in. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think a lot of kids and many families don't care so much about the content. They're more interested in, like you say, that engagement or the love of learning or maybe even values like challenge mm-hmm. and building up the muscles of learning and knowing how to learn. You know, I, I think of it in terms of meta-learning. Meta-learning is definitely a way that I think about like what, how does one, what does one need to learn and what, what skill set does a person need to develop to, in order to be a lifelong learner? For me, that's, that's key. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what we are all looking for. Yeah. Um, how much does it cost to hmm. sign your kids up for these classes? And, and I'm sure there's a, a wide, wide range, range. But, but give me the, the ballpark. Wow. Okay. Well, if I'm going to simplify it, I would say that in the Bay Area, it's a lot cheaper than private school. Even if you're pretty much going full on and high, and you know, signing your kid up for things all day, every day, I think that that is looking okay. I'm going to throw out a rough ballpark. Okay. <laughs> yeah, obviously, yeah. like it's Do totally. It. it depends it. on which classes and all that kind of stuff, and what combination. And if you're taking some inexpensive community college classes, it's less. You know, you can go to Foothill College for twenty five dollars. Uh, or no, actually, if you're a concurrent student, you don't pay anything. So community college for free. Community college for free. So if you do some of that and then you're doing maybe a more expensive class, I would say you could have your kid in an external class or a community-oriented class that you're paying for a good number of them, plus some tutoring and some private like expensive classes like music lessons or something for probably around $16,000 a year. And when you compare that to private school – which in the Bay Area is usually between twenty-five and forty-five thousand dollars. It's oh a lot cheaper. Now you could also do it by having the kid mostly be at home, mostly doing free online classes, mostly doing exchanges between you know teaching teaching a few kids your domain expertise and then having another parent and do trades that kind of thing for almost nothing. Okay, except for the cost of the lost opportunity of possibly one parent who's around. That said, let me clarify that there are parents in my community who work full-time and homeschool their kids. It's certainly challenging, but it can also be done. Okay. So you're saying that uh, we're ranging anywhere from zero to around $15,000 a year. I would put that as the range, yeah. Yeah. And so if you're a family that has a budget of $3,000 for your your homeschooling, your whatever your supplementary educational activities are beyond the self-directed learning that the kid will do on their own, 
then you can sign up for for some stuff. You yeah. can have this a la carte experience. And you know, if you just want to sign up for the science classes or you just want to sign up for public speaking through Shakespeare, yeah. then you can just do that. Yes, or you can do what we used to do more often before there were so many service provider, providers, which is form co-ops, okay. where you trade off and you, 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 cr- you bring people together and you offer a class. Like, so for example, I used to have about six or eight kids in my, cl- in my house and I would struggle through not doing a very good job of it, teaching something called Druidon, which is a role-playing game like Dungeons and Dragons, but it's focused on encouraging creative writing. So it's basically a writing class in the form of a role-playing game. And I was terrible at, at being a DM, but I would have to ask the kids, okay, what do you think? Uh, he, what, should, what should be the appropriate thing that happens? Now? So they kind of helped. They, they humored me because they liked it so much. So, and then another family maybe did um, you know, something else. For many, many years, uh, my family traded off with another family where the mom, Chris, taught classical – education. So she worked with Kaizen and her son on reading through all the Greek, you know, Odyssey and the Iliad and classical literature. And my husband worked on math with them both Hmm. in kind of a freeform creative way. Mm -hmm. So. So would you consider this Bay Area community to be highly welcoming and inclusive of families who are very academically focused and also families who are not academically focused of more school at home homeschoolers who just want a little bit of supplementary activities and also totally free form unschoolers. Do you mean my particular community? My, my, yeah, I just speak to the community that that you're a part of. What I would say is that my particular group is specifically, um, I'm not going to say open to, we, we do have a membership process, but the people who are the, we look for people who are a right fit for our group. And I would say the people who are really a good fit for our group are people who are, not not specifically uh, achievement-oriented, but are learning-focused and intellectually engagement-focused. And we do require that people identify themselves or their kids as having a gifted need, which okay. can be wide-ranging. So it's kind of not, not a what-come-one-come-all. Okay. Um, it's more that we're looking for people who are right fit. And that doesn't necessarily mean if you're, if you're the type of family who wants to push your kids to excel because you think they're bright and you just want them to power through and do really well, that's not probably the right fit for our group. Mm-hmm. Our group mm-hmm. is a little bit more of an intellectual engagement-oriented okay. rather than achievement-oriented. Um, but what I will say is the Bay Area in general is, I think – pretty unprecedented in terms of the availability of community and other people homeschooling and doing all variations of independent learning so that you can pretty much find anything that you want here. And it's the perfect place to create a community that matches your values. Hmm. So if, if you have a particular approach to learning that you really want to surround yourself by, this is a great area to put it out and to say, hey, this is the group that I'm creating, come and join us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's so many opportunities for support and um, so many possibilities for, like we are just talking about, externalized offerings. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it's a pretty exciting place to be for independent learners. In my exciting opinion. place, exciting time. Mm, it is. Yep. So in this land of plenty that you describe, cornucopia land, San Francisco Bay Area. What is still missing for families who don't send their kids to traditional public or private school? What what opportunities are out there waiting to be seized? 
I think that many of us are greatly appreciative of the freedom that we have to learn independently and even in communities, as I've described. But I think as our kids get older and they start to head into the teen years, there's a need for something a little bit different, sort of what I would say is the marrying of the school world and independent learning world. And that's why I like the term micro school, because I think there's an element of the micro school that potentially answers this challenge. And that is that kids want the freedom. They don't want to, the kids that have grown up in this world, they don't want to go into a high school environment. But a lot of times they're inclined to do that because they want a little bit more autonomy And they want autonomy in ways that their families want autonomy for them too, but they don't want to just send them necessarily out into the world. They want it to be facilitated in some way, but not necessarily as – they want a little more space from the – them from the home. And they also want more regular access to a peer group. Mm. And mm-hmm. so one of the things you mentioned earlier, and I wanted to comment on it then, your friend who's interested in creating a teen learning center. Yeah, he, he did create a he teen did? learning center. Where is yeah. it? It's in Princeton, New Jersey, Oh, a short okay. commute away so from San Francisco. That is desperately needed in the Bay Area. And a number of people over the last two or three years have been brainstorming on it, talking about it, looking at, does it need to be VC funded? Is it a standalone business? Is it something that we create together? One person right now I know named Marcy is talking to Foothill about creating a teen center as part of their the Foothill um, concurrent program, but so the teens have a place to be. It's really needed to have a space, and I liken it to the idea of a co-working space. So just like you and I or other people who are independent working and living who are adults – we're inclined to go somewhere where we can interact with other people doing the same. We don't want to live, we don't want to do all our work alone all the time. And I think that a similar model would be a great, is a great opportunity for someone to grab onto. And I know there are people thinking about this. I know this is germinating right now, but it hasn't fully taken off in the way it needs to. Which really surprises me because on the East Coast, there are a ton. So the the Princeton Learning Cooperative that I described is part of the Liberated Learners Network. It's based upon North Star, which is a teen learning center that started in the mid-90s in Western Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And that model has spread all across the East Coast. And I was just hanging out at Grace Llewellyn's house Mm because Grace is starting what will be the first West Coast Liberated Learners Center. Uh, But why aren't these centers on the West Coast? It's kind of crazy. It's really interesting that it hasn't like, I would think that we right here in the Bay Area, because of all the things that we've just been talking about, would already have made some strides there. And I think, like I say, it's coming, but uh, it seems like we need to be talking to, you need to be connecting me and other Mm -hmm. people up with um, some of the people who are doing it, Grace, and also the East Coast situation, because I think it's needed. There is a, a a guy named Michael Staten who's involved with Learn Capital, who's one of the VC, uh, one of the venture capitalists in the Bay Area that um, that that invests primarily in, or maybe even solely in, educational um, tech ed tech companies. And Michael was really set on trying to find something like this and trying to create it. And it's just like, I think it just hasn't quite clicked Hmm. in the right way. Let's make sure we're talking about the same thing. So the Liberated Learners Centers are essentially like free schools. Mm -hmm. And so they have adults who offer mentorship, they have classes that are offered, but everything's optional. 
And and so you can go there as a teenager and just hang out if you uh, want. And so yeah. they have like, you know, basic rules. Yeah. You can't just go and just, dis- you know, distract yeah. everyone. Uh, but as long as you follow the basic rules, then you can just go there and be around other teens and kind of see what they're doing, maybe get involved, maybe hang on the wall a little bit longer. Is that the kind of thing you, you think is missing or is it a little bit different from that? I think that is one incarnation of it, one version of it. And like everything else, I think there's room for multiple multiple styles. What, what would multiple, you want to see personally? What would I personally? Yeah. I actually like the idea of very, I don't like to pick one thing. So if I was going to design it, if I was going to do it myself, it would be something like a, 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 a place that was co-located where people could come and they could be, I don't know. I'm not sure. How, I'm, I'm sort of like our conversation that we had earlier, just privately about this conflict between how much freedom and how much structure kids should have. And I don't feel like, as I described to you, I don't feel set on that. I'm not, that's a, that's an evolving th- thinking on my part. Sure. Like I'm constantly working with it. And I think the same thing, if I'm designing a freestanding learning center, I would definitely want some structured possibilities for kids mm-hmm. and some structured offerings. And I also like the idea of having free-floating opportunities. So that's why I keep likening it to a co-working space. For me, a co-working space is a place where you can go and you can work on your own projects. But it also has the opportunity to have events and talks and yeah. offerings. I think we're talking about the same thing. Maybe, because yeah. these teen learning centers on the East Coast are essentially co-working centers. Mm-hmm. Where you come, you can work on your own thing, you can work on stuff with other people, but it's all optional. Right. And you go to a co-working center, no one's forcing you to go to the, right. the networking lunch right. or to work on a certain thing at a certain time. But I definitely would want, my vision of this would be that there are more structured learning options available, mm-hmm. but it would be a great place. And I actually worked with a friend about five or six years ago with the idea of trying to create something like this, but for the younger kids, because our kids were younger then. And the idea then is that there were, it was a place almost like a, not a strip mall, but kind of like a co-located place where uh, companies that are have offerings for that community also were there. So you could go there and you could do, oh, martial arts. And then you could go over to the co-working mm, space. Mm-hmm. And at the co-working space, you could take part in a public speaking class. And then you could go across the street to the tech company and do, you know, a class on um, coding. Sure. And then you could go back to the to the to the teen learning center and hang out for um, you know, working period, working on your projects. And just basically a place for people to congregate for learning and hmm. for freedom and for community. And this sounds like, you know, my model of what high schools could be, which yeah. is just uh, centers with really dynamic, engaging uh, classes yep. and activities that are offered, but almost everything is optional. Yes. And so you can float in between. You can design your own structure or, or lack thereof. Uh, and and why, why aren't they like this? Why don't we have these I little magical I, learning villages? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to do it. I wish I had more time. I wish I had, you know, another, another 24 life. hours in every day. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And yeah, I, I'm sure it's going to happen. And I'm sure it's going to happen in all kinds of different ways, because I think that's the beautiful thing about what's happening in learning and what the future of learning is, is that it is constantly unfolding and evolving. And the growth and the change is, well, I'm sure you've seen it because you've been watching it and involved in it for so many years also, is that it feels like the opportunities keep showing up in new ways and more and more people are getting involved in the conversation. And I just feel that it's a constantly evolving and super exciting time. 
You know what? I agree. And uh, it seems like the San Francisco Bay Area agrees with you, too. I think so. (laughs) And I think you've made that happen, too. I feel like you've been an instrumental part in this becoming such a wonderful place to be raised in a non-traditional learner. I I feel really lucky to be surrounded by so many like-minded people because I feel that we've collectively, uh, you know, collectively impacted the way that learning happens here and what's available for other people. It's a generous community. Yeah, and I hope that it will spread to other parts of the U.S. and the world. Yes. 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 (laughs) All right. Thanks, Lisa. (laughs) Thank you.